Barriers to belief are basically those nagging questions that come into our lives that make us get stuck in our pursuit of God. And so for some of you who are here who aren't Christians, these are probably the types of questions that you say, I can't cross over, I can't go ahead and become a Christian, I can't put my faith in Jesus because this question is stopping me. And for those of us who are Christians, sometimes we deal with those same questions and we're troubled by those same questions, but we simply say, all right, I'm in, I've already given my life to Jesus, I place my faith in him, but I'm probably going to be on the fringes in certain areas because I don't want to delve into how much I'm troubled by this question. And God doesn't want us stuck. God wants us to lean in and God addresses even the biggest questions that we have through his word. And so the question that we're going to delve into today is the question of why is Jesus the only way? And to do that, we're going to go through a passage in the book of Hebrews. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read our passage for us as we start off. It's going to be Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. So you can follow along in a Bible. Or if you don't, hopefully you've got the bulletin insert and the verses will also be up here on the screen. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins." But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is God's word. Let's go ahead and pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you don't leave us in our confusion and you don't leave us in our stuckness, Father. I pray that you speak clearly through the power of your spirit. I pray that you speak through me as I look to give us help through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, about two years ago, one of my kids kicked a hole in our wall. We have this hallway, and at the end of the hallway is a wall, and there was a big, nice hole in it. And the funny thing about it was he didn't do it because he was angry or throwing a tantrum or anything like that. He did it because, according to him, he was practicing his wall kicks. (laughs) 
Now, some of you know that this is a thing in video games where you get the character and they jump from one wall to the other wall and he'd seen this done and thought he'd like to do it. And so why not practice at the wall at the end of the hallway? You can get a nice running start to that. Um, So we have this hole in the wall at the end of our hallway. And some of you know me well enough to know I am the least handy person at this church. I really, I don't know my way about around anything. We're always calling in somebody even for simple tasks. But I just decided I was going to fix this. Um, Even when I decided and got determined, Karina was like, are you sure you want to do this? I was like, no, no, I got it. I am going to do this. I am going to fix the hole in our wall. And I knew I could do it because I knew where to look to get the help. Yeah, you know it already. I knew I had YouTube. And all I had to do was go to YouTube and type in something along the lines of how do you patch a wall, a hole in your wall. And so I did, and I found a video where a guy was walking through the exact problem that I had, exactly how to fix it. I kept pausing each step. It'd be like four seconds, pause, write that down. All right, four more seconds. And I got the whole thing and I watched it through a couple of times. Then I paused the video. I ran out to Home Depot, got the exact thing that he told me to get in it, came on back, restarted the video, put it on my laptop at the end of the hall, stepped by step, four seconds, stop, do what he says. I did all of that. I got it all patched up. And let me just tell you, I fixed that hole in our wall. (laughs) You would not know there was ever a wall kick induced hole in that wall. It's gone. It's fixed. Now, here's the deal. It's, It's obvious why I was able to do this. The reason I was able to do this is because I had somebody who was skilled enough in this to teach me step by step how to do it. I had this YouTube expert. And just to be real, I don't have any, I don't remember at all who he is. I couldn't find the video if I wanted to right now. I I don't remember who it was that I watched. Um, But what I do remember was that when I did the search on YouTube, that video was not the only video that came up. There's a whole bunch of videos that came up. There were a whole bunch of experts. It turns out that a task that I didn't know how to do, a whole bunch of people know how to do. There's a whole bunch of you that could have just said, I could have come over and helped you through this. You could have walked me through this. A lot of people had the answer. Now, now I, I looked to this one guy. He got the job done. But it would seem foolish if what I then did is said he was the only one that could help me fix this problem. It's simply not true. And in a similar way, sometimes we as Christians are asked, why is it that just because you seem to have found something in Jesus, you seem to have found some new life or some inner peace or some good teaching, just because you found that in Jesus, why is it that you assume that he's the only way? There's a lot of teachers out there There's a lot of religions out there. It not only seems foolish to believe that Jesus is the only way, but to some people it also seems bigoted. It seems kind of proud. The way that I've found, the savior that I've adopted is the only way. Whereas other people that were born in a different place and maybe had a different majority religion, they just have hitched their wagon to the wrong horse. It's not surprising that this is a barrier to belief that this is a stumbling point, especially in the 21st century when plurality is sort of the air that we breathe. How is it that we could come back to the point of saying Jesus is the only way? Why would we be insistent on this? 
And the key to understanding this question, as we're going to see as we walk through this passage, is in how exactly we're looking at Jesus. And the key to understanding this is that Jesus stands out when we view him not primarily as a teacher, but primarily as a savior. Now, let, let me bring some clarification before we get, even get into this. Um, is Jesus a teacher? Yes. yes, absolutely. He's not only a teacher, he is the best teacher. He is the teacher that came to show us who God is to the point that he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. So in saying this, I'm not trying to in any way say Jesus' teachings aren't important or that Jesus isn't a teacher. Jesus is a teacher. He's the greatest teacher. In fact, Jesus is so much, teaching is so important to Jesus that it's foolish when people try to separate out his teaching from his identity by saying, all right, you can believe some things that Jesus said and you can believe the golden rule and these other things, but that doesn't mean that you need to believe that he's the son of God. If you believe you can separate Jesus' teachings from his identity, you need to read more of what Jesus taught because he didn't do this. There's a passage um, in John chapter six and it leads up to the point where Jesus says the great, I am the bread of life statement. And leading up to that, a bunch of Jewish people who have seen his miracles come to Jesus and they say, tell us what work God wants us to do. In other words, they're asking Jesus, the teacher, the question. They're saying, teach us what to do to make God pleased with us. And Jesus' response is to say, the work that the Father has given you to do is to believe in the one that he sent. Jesus did not separate his moral teaching from his identity. But here's why I make this statement. If we look at Jesus and in our minds we say, the reason why Jesus is so important to us is because he teaches us right from wrong because he tells us good and bad, because he tells us good and evil. That's the main thing that makes Jesus stand out. It's actually not true because there's a lot of versions of the golden rule. There's a lot of people that will tell you murder and adultery and stealing and lying are wrong. That's not the thing that most makes Jesus stand out. What most makes Jesus stand out is not his identity as a teacher, but his identity as the savior. And as we walk through this passage in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, we're going to see two basic things that the author of Hebrews brings us through. He's going to bring us through a realization of our greatest need, and then within that need, he's going to bring us to a realization of our only hope. And so we'll start with the greatest need. And the greatest need, to sum up briefly, is forgiveness, Now, even to bring clarity to this, it would be fair. You could make the argument that somebody could say, our our greatest need isn't actually forgiveness. Our greatest need is just God. Our greatest problem as human beings is that we're estranged from God. And not just that as individuals we're estranged from God, but as the world we're estranged from God, that we're disconnected from him. And that's not only why you have problems in your life, that's why we have problems in the world. That's why we have wars. That's why we have divorce. That's why we have all kinds of arguments. That's why we have disease. That's why we have disasters. The reason why we have problems in the world is because we're disconnected from God. And that's definitely true. But what the author of Hebrews is going to say is that the thing that needs to happen for us to get connected to God is we're going to need to be forgiven. 
I'll put up verses one and two again. And he starts with talking through the Old Testament and the law, and especially the law of sacrifices. He says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And in other words, what he's saying here is not, you know what, God tried out sacrifices and it was plan A and it wasn't a very good plan and so God moved on to Jesus with plan B. It's not what the author is saying at all. What he's saying is the whole sacrificial system, the whole law, it was a means to an end. It was meant to show us something about a reality that was going to take place later on. Now he says, for this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. And he's talking not only about the fact that the Jews were constantly bringing animal sacrifices and other sacrifices to God, but that once a year at the Day of Atonement, they had a time where the entire nation was symbolically cleansed from sin by the sacrifice of an animal. Look at what he says in verse two. He says, otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. And so the author here, who almost certainly is writing to Jewish Christians, is drawing on this idea. He's saying, remember when you come and you'd offer the sacrifices and the animal sacrifices again and again and again and again? Why was it not just good to offer them once? And the reason it wasn't just good to offer them once is because they were never really the point. They were a means to an end. They were a shadow of a reality that was going to come later. But in the last statement of verse two, he tells us what the dream would be. The thing that we wish would happen from these sacrifices, he says, for the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. He's saying that's the dream right there. That's what we want. That's what we need. If we're going to be connected to God, I mean, wouldn't it be great if you didn't bring the sacrifice year after year, but just one sacrifice took care of it all and you were cleansed, you were made clean. Any mom in here ever get tired of cleaning up a mess after your kids and then coming back 20 minutes later? to clean up the same exact mess after your twins? Wouldn't it be a dream to have a solution that would make it where you never needed to clean that room again? Here's the author of Hebrews saying, wow, wouldn't that be a dream where we weren't coming back again and again with the sacrifice? We were just cleansed once and for all. All our guilt, all our shame is taken away. And the second part of what he says is he says, because if that was true, we would no longer have felt guilty for our sins, which might bring up the question. You might say, is the problem that we feel guilty or is the problem that we are guilty? And the ultimate answer is, well, the problem is that we are guilty. It it is true that sometimes um, you can feel guilty about something that you're not actually guilty of. That does happen. But on the whole, feelings of guilt are a symptom for internal real guilt. They're a symptom of the deeper problem. We feel guilty because we are guilty. And most of us, if not all of us, know just how crushing the weight of guilt can be. In Psalm 38, David talks about the whole idea of just being crushed by the weight of guilt. 
and talks about it as bone crushing and he's sick and he's exhausted and he's worn out because of his guilt. You ever been worn out because of your guilt? You ever felt that crushing weight and just felt like you were never going to get beyond it? And the only thing you wanted in the world, the only thing you wanted is just to be free, just to have it taken away just once and for all that I don't have to worry about this anymore. The author of Hebrews is saying, man, that's the dream. The dream is that that sense of guilt that we have would be taken away once and for all. But he makes pretty clear sacrifices aren't going to get that done. It says in verse three, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. They're not getting the job done. They're just reminding us that a job needs to get done. And then he says overtly in verse four, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This sacrificial system wasn't going to get it done. We need forgiveness. We need to be cleansed. And the system that the Jewish people had wasn't going to get it done. And we can even pause here for a moment and just ask a question. And it's, it's a totally legitimate question. And the question is, if forgiveness is so important to God, why doesn't he just forgive us? I mean, if we need to be forgiven to get to God, why doesn't he just forgive us? Why doesn't he just declare it over the world and say, you know what, enough of this. I'm God, I get to decide. Everybody is forgiven. I've pronounced that it's true. And biblically, I I can give you at least two reasons why that doesn't happen. Reason number one is that forgiveness in and of itself does not accomplish reconciliation. And God's end game for the world, God's end game for you is not simply that you would be forgiven and sent on your way. God wants you adopted into the family. The ultimate goal for us as human beings is not to get God off our back. It's to get God. You guys know the story that Jesus told, the parable of the prodigal son? Two of you are like, yes, I know that story. All right, that's good. It's a famous story. Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son and the son that runs away and goes to the far country and spends off all his money and does all kinds of horrible things and then decides I'm gonna try to go back home. And it's just this beautiful story about reconciliation where ultimately what happens is he's coming back to the house and he knows that he's not worthy. He knows that there's no reason for the father to forgive him. But the father runs out and embraces him and hugs him and throws a party for him because he welcomes him back into the family. Just imagine if that that story ended with the son coming home and apologizing and the father saying, you know what? Let's let bygones be bygones. It's all good. Go on your way. That would be forgiveness, but it wouldn't be reconciliation. God is not satisfied with sending us on our way. God wants to fix what's broken inside of us so that we can have union with him. That's the first reason why God doesn't just let it go. The second reason why God doesn't just let it go is because God prizes justice. God values justice. And and at the core, there's something inside of us that prizes that too, that says that's important. People shouldn't just get away with it. Hitler shouldn't just get away with it. Stalin shouldn't just get away with it. People that do these horrific things, rapists and child molesters, they shouldn't just get away with it. There should be a punishment for sin. God is a God of justice. So he doesn't just let it go. There needs to be a punishment for sin. But the sacrifices in the Old Testament 
weren't getting it done. We need a savior. We need a savior because our greatest problem is that we need to be forgiven. Now let me just pause in in here again and say this. Um, There's a lot of other things that we can be tempted to believe are our deepest problem. We can be tempted to believe that our deepest problem is that we're lonely or that our deepest problem is that we don't have enough money or that our deepest problem is that we have anxiety in our lives or that our deepest problem is that we just haven't been able to get out of bad habits as far as our moral living or that our parents are, or that our um, life has fallen apart as far as our relationships because we're not able to handle ourselves well there and so we need more moral guidance. We have a lot of problems and we can think those things are the main problem. And there's a scene in the movie Saving Private Ryan um, that's a memorable, tragic scene, and it's where the medic is shot. And the rest of the team is gathered around the medic as he's bleeding, and things are really not looking good. He was shot in the liver, and, and they're trying to care for him. They're trying to repair him, and none of them know what to do. And eventually, one of the soldiers gathers over there, and he says to the medic, tell us what to do. We don't know what to do. Tell us what to do. And there's a pause And then the medic says, I think I could use some more morphine. And it's at that moment that you know it's all over. The morphine isn't going to fix this guy. The morphine isn't going to keep him from bleeding out. It's just going to numb the pain and make him feel a little bit better as he slowly dies. When we make our ultimate pursuit, I'm lonely, I just need community. I'm in chaos, I just need rules. I'm anxious, I need some exercises to get rid of my anxiety. When we treat our main problem as that, we're just asking for morphine while we're bleeding out. And I'll even say this, if your quest for that kind of morphine got you here, that's good. But the main thing that I wanna offer you is not morphine. The main thing that I want to offer you is the forgiveness that's brought only by Jesus. And that's where the author goes next. He says, all right, our greatest need is forgiveness. We have only one hope for that to happen. And the only one hope we have for that to happen is a sacrifice. Sin has to be paid for because God prizes justice. But God loves his people and wants them to be reconciled to him. So there has to be a sacrifice in our place. And the Jews all throughout the Old Testament were bringing sacrifices, but we've already been told that's not getting the job done. And then we get to verse five. And verse five says, therefore, when Christ came into the world. And just pause and take in. This is the hero entrance moment, ladies and gentlemen. This is the moment where things are looking absolutely grim, where the bad guys are about to win, where the heroes are cornered and helpless. This is the hero entrance moment. Therefore, when you were guilty and ashamed and had no hope at all, therefore, when Christ came into the world... Let me just, I, I, I'm going to just do this. I'm gonna, it's going to be a major spoiler for the rest of this passage, but I'll just go ahead and do it now. This is not going to be a message that ends with saying, Jesus is great, but there's lots of other good ways also, and we need to be respectful of those. At Life Bible Fellowship Church, we are all about Jesus. We believe that Jesus is the bread of life, that Jesus is the light of the world, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is the gate. He is the good shepherd. He is the way and the truth and the life. He is the true vine. 
Jesus is the only one who can save us. Jesus is the only one who can forgive us. When we were at our deepest, darkest place, therefore, when Christ came into the world. And then he quotes Psalm 40, which I'll read and then I'll explain. It's kind of an odd thing that he does here. Quotes Psalm 40 as if Jesus is saying this. It's a sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. And the odd thing is, if if you were to go back and read Psalm 40, um, you wouldn't read Psalm 40 and say, well, this is clearly about Jesus. You would read Psalm 40 and say, well, this is about David. This is about King David. And what King David appears to be saying is, God, the main thing that you want from me is not for me to offer sacrifices. The main thing that you want from me is for me to offer my whole life to you. For me to offer my body, my spirit, my obedience, that I'm ready to do your will. That's what you really want from me. It's not about the sacrifices, which is weird because who told David to do the sacrifices? And you can say, God. It's like, well, this was your idea, God. But it's almost like when you have kids and you tell one kid to apologize to another, and you know how that normally goes? Like, say you're sorry, I'm sorry. You're like, "Mm." That's not exactly great. Say it again. Say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And you're like, ah, it's getting worse. Um, And and eventually what you have to try to tell the kid is the end game. The goal here is not for you to say the words, I'm sorry. The goal is for you to show your brother, your sister, your friend that you hurt them and that you care about the fact that you hurt them. That's the goal I'm sorry, it's just a means to an end. In the same way, David is saying, all right, the main goal here is not the sacrifices. The main idea here is not that I just do something and God is off my back. The main thing is that I'm offering my whole self. So when I'm bringing that grain or when I'm bringing that animal, that's a symbol of me saying to God, I hold nothing back from you. And so David uses this psalm as an opportunity to say, God, the thing that you want from me is not just for me to bring you an animal. The thing that you want from me is to offer my whole self to you. And what the author of Hebrews is going to show is that Jesus did this in an even greater way. So he says in verse eight, first he says, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance to the law. So he starts by saying, all right, David is getting into this. And now we're seeing Jesus, when he's getting into this, is saying the main thing that I did was not bring an animal to sacrifice. Verse nine, then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. Saying when Jesus showed up on the scene, here's basically what Jesus said. I didn't come to bring an animal, I came to do the will of God. And then verse 10 says, and by that will, we have been made holy. This is what he was talking about back in verses one and two. Uh, Isn't there a way? Wouldn't it be wonderful if there was a way for us to be cleansed? Wouldn't it be wonderful if there was a way for us to be forgiven, for us to be set right so that we could approach God as sons and daughters, not far off as enemies? Wouldn't there be a great way? Wouldn't it be great if that could happen? And he says that by Jesus doing the will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus came not to bring an animal as a sacrifice. Jesus came to bring himself 
as the sacrifice. Jesus came for the once and for all sacrifice that would never have to be repeated, where we would be cleansed and we would live in the reality of the idea that we're not just approaching God on borrowed time. We are approaching God as his sons and daughters who have been reconciled to him through the sacrificial death of his son. You know, sometimes we can even get into our own heads in this whole idea and we can say, well, gosh, this is hard. I'm talking to my non-Christian friends and I'm wrestling through this issue and I'm hearing different things on the news and it's, it's hard to get to the point of really standing by this idea that Jesus is the only way. It seems outdated, maybe even seems a little bit prejudiced. And I'm not quite sure how to do this. Why would it be that there's only one way? And here's what I want to say. We are looking at the question all wrong because if there's only one way and that one way is through Jesus, you know what that means? That means there's a way. There doesn't have to be any way at all. God doesn't have to cleanse and forgive his people. The idea that there's only one way and we're going to get hung up on that is completely missing the point. The point is that for every human being on the planet, there is a way. There's a way to be forgiven. There's a way to be cleansed. There's a way to be welcomed into the arms of God the Father as a son or as a daughter. There is only one way, but that means there's a way. And so here's what I want to do. I, I want to give an invitation to anyone here who's not a Christian, and then I want to give an invitation to those of us who are Christians. And so I'll start. Some, some of you are here and you're not Christians, um, and, and you know it. Maybe you started coming on Easter. Maybe you've just been coming around for a while and you'd say, yep, I, I haven't yet put my faith in Jesus. I'm not sure I'm going to, but I'm looking into it and I'm hearing some teaching and I'm trying to sort through my questions. So if that's where you're at, my invitation to you is to place your faith in Jesus so that you're cleansed from all your sins. So that once and for all, you're brought into the family of God. So that your deepest problem is dealt with. And I even want to extend that invitation further. If you're here and you would have called yourself a Christian, but really what you've realized is, I, I called myself a Christian because I was after the morphine. I was after the morphine of a more moral life. I was after the morphine of just a community that could be around me so I wouldn't be lonely. I was after the morphine of just some tricks that I could do to try to get the stress out of my life and have more inner tranquility. I was after the morphine, but thank God if you were after the morphine, you got here for the real deal. And so if you came here for the morphine, I want to invite you to give your heart to the Savior, to come for your deepest problem. Don't pleasantly bleed out be rescued by Jesus. And, and, and just in a little while, I'll pray, but just leading up to this, if you want to grab your connection card and just mark on there, I, I want to give my heart to Jesus. I want to start a relationship with Jesus. If you want to find somebody who's going to be up here afterwards to pray with you, or some of us who are going to be outside wearing our name tags, we will be ready to have a conversation with any of you that are saying, all right, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to be cleansed once for all by the one and only Savior. That's my invitation to you if you're not a Christian. And now here's my invitation to you if you are a Christian. There's actually gonna be two. And the first one is this. If you are a Christian, revel in your cleansing. Revel in the grace of God. Some of you are weighed down 
by stuff that's going on, weighed down by guilt, maybe even from stuff years ago, decades ago. I want you to do something, and I promise I'm not going to make you say anything out loud right now. But I want you to think about the thing in your life that you feel most weighed down about and that, frankly, for most of you, you really kind of hope nobody else finds out about. And I want you to take a moment right now as we're talking to revel in the fact that that is cleansed once and for all. You don't need any future cleansing from that. It has been removed from God as far as the east is from the west. It is completely taken care of. Revel in God's grace. Enjoy God's grace. Soak in the fact that you are 100% forgiven. You don't have anything hanging over you. You are forgiven and free through Jesus. That's invitation number one. And invitation number two is don't ever be ashamed to talk to your neighbors and your family and your friends and your coworkers about the one and only Savior. You're not being bigoted. You're not being proud. You're not being elitist. You're simply choosing not to hoard the treasure, but instead to share it with other people who share the same problem that you do, and that's that we need the forgiveness of God if we're going to be brought into a relationship with him. And Jesus is the only savior who's come to make that possible. Let me pray for us as we finish. Father, I want to pray for those who are here this morning and you've brought them to a point where they are ready to put their faith in Jesus. Father, I pray nothing would get in the way I pray that they would step forward by faith. I pray that they would experience the joy of new life in Jesus, the joy that only you bring. I pray that they'd experience relief and the forgiveness of their sins and the joy of the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Father, bring new life. And I pray for those of us who are believers. And Father, I pray that we would be so enamored, so overjoyed by the new life that you've given us that we would be assigned to the people around us of the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. Lead us in obedience and lead us in joyful obedience as we revel in the grace that you've poured out in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Pray in his name, amen.